Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Myself, Gaddy, is joined by Mr. Tilt. Everyone you see lets out a sigh. It's time for tea and Hugh and I. It's not the same, is it? It isn't the same, no. And trying to get the strange world of Gurney Slade to fit into that lyric, <laughs> it just it wouldn't work. So first of all, apologies for our absence last week. It was, how did you put it, technical failure followed by orgasmic failure, is that what you said? Organic. Oh, I see, right, okay. And I've got milk-based problems at this end as well. I wouldn't bore you for the details, but, you know, as the delivery and took a while to clean up and so on. So here we are, and we've already alluded to what we're talking about this week. It's Meet the Wife from 1963, but there is breaking news on the horizon, Tilt. Okay, because you're going to have to stop this recording now for the next 25 minutes and go off and watch something. Because we've had a tweet from Mumos, and Mumos asks, well, it's not so much the asks, it's more of a sort of a hope. He's expressed this desire that the next edition of the Sitcom Club will be talking about the CITV sitcom from 1995, Cone Zone. Now, I've got to admit that this is a little bit after my CITV viewing time, so I wasn't still watching in 95. I'm aware of it. I know it's my favourites, Lee Pressman and Grant Cafro, creators of Teabag and Spats, but it's not something that I'd ever seen. However, I do notice that I think the chap's name is Videotape FTW. Uh, hopefully I've got that the right way around. Uh, I think that's his YouTube handle. He has uploaded some editions of Cone Zone to YouTube, and I think he actually got some of them, at least some of them, from Lee Pressman himself. So if we hit the pause button for just a second... Here, tell we're going to go off and we're going to watch episode one of Cone Zone and we're going to come back. Okay, so three, two, one, pause, and we're back. Till Cone Zone, what do you make of that? It was from the nineties. For all that we say, time stood still. Well, this is before the end of history, isn't it? Which was circa ninety-seven, ninety-eight. That's when history temporarily ended. I think history has resumed. I think cultural change is beginning to get a bit more measurable. But no, everybody looked from the nineties. You could tell. For all that uh, certainly Mike Scott says that the 90s are unparodiable, the people in it, some of them just couldn't have dressed like that 10 years later without standing out. Okay, well, let, let's do a little checklist here. So we'll say, first of all, if you're going to parody the 90s, then you're going to have four free, definitely. I'd also say, despite what we've talked about in the show before, Grace and Favour, and other shows like Mulberry, despite that business with the BBC shows of the early 90s being quite sort of drained when it comes to colour, I'm going to say lots of colour for 90s. Because I'm thinking that probably people associate the 90s more with maybe late 90s and things like Spice Girls and Britpop and what have you. So that's quite a sort of colourful period. So I'm going to say, yeah, for free, strong colours, and also big glasses as well. Big glasses and that sort of pulled tight back hair with the ponytail. You don't really see people like that anymore. You don't see that combination, or I don't, of big glasses and tight ponytails on men. But everybody who ever presented The Late Show looked like that. Mm-hmm. What about things like, say, jewellery, earrings? Are they are they larger in the 90s? Are they, are they more sort of... Because I think we're maybe on a period now where things are a bit more sort of subtle or something like that. I can't tell you anything about that. I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't think there's a particular dominant style on accessories right now. Fashion's still fractured. I mean, you'd be able to parody the 2010s with, for men anyway, you know, quiffs, bushy beards, waxed moustaches. Girls, you kind of do that slightly revival of the French new look, but with long hair, sort of Zoe Deschanel kind of thing. 
Now, this is a thing because it can be as much about what you don't have as what you do. So what do you call those things that men have got where they're like their earrings, but they've got they've like expanded the entire earlobe? Oh, ear gauges. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I think that's kind of like, you know, 90s Seattle kind of thing, ear gauges. Oh, well, no. That, oh, Seattle, fine. But I'm talking about like just general, you know, mainstream sort of stuff. You wouldn't see that in a 90s thing, would you? Unless you're in a New Radicals pop video. It's not really getting cone zone examined. I don't have a great deal to say about it. It seems to have shrunk back a little from Spats. Spats, of course, had that international flavour and friendly grown-ups as well. I know Jennifer Calvert's character was a bit dodgy, but just going by this one episode of Corn Zone, the only adults we see are antagonists. It's all about the kids doing things for themselves. There's there's a guy who's supposed to be like the leader of a gang, and he looks like he'd be in one of those Sun Life adverts, you know, where you write off and you get the carriage clock sent to you by Michael Parkinson or something. I don't think he looked as old as you said. Oh, God, he looked 45. <laughs> okay, he was played by Harold Bennett. But <laughs> <laughs> it's good, silly fun. And yeah, when you, when you say about the international aspect is sort of missing, none of that sort of NTSC business, there's no Canadian business going on here as far as we can tell. It's, it's all UK. But also, Corn Zone, it's a smaller location. Everything feels to have shrunk a little. No criticism, just that's it. Always nice to see Paul Shearer, though. Yes, yes. Later on, by Series 3, because it ran for free series until 97, you can have a look at this later on if you want, because there's one of them on, at least one of them on YouTube as well. It changes its appearance ever so slightly, and it has, it's not quite the phony film look, but it's got a sort of soft sort of focus to it. And it's like it's trying to be a little bit more sort of E4 before E4 was a thing, if that makes any sense. Whereas like the, that episode that we watched was very much Free Walls VT. You're frightening me now. No, let's go back to the 60s. E4 look. I, I don't know what the E4 look is. Well, you know, Dawson's Creek and all that kind of thing. I never watched Dawson's Creek. never watched Dawson's Weekly, actually. I, I should do something about that. <laughs> so I hope that answers your query, Mumos. You want to go back into the TARDIS, 1963? Okay. Right, come on then. So, here we are, and it's, I think it's three days after Christmas, is it not? And we've got a nice new little show on BBC television, as it still is then, because we don't have a second channel yet. And it is Fora Hard and Freddie Frinton. And the show is called Meet the Wife, and it's written by Chesney and Wolfe, who people now associate much more with things like On the Buses. On the other side, and the rag trade, of course. The rag trade began the year before on BBC. To say that we've just described pretty much the entire setup (laughs) is probably true, because in a way, this is a nice little show about nothing quite often. It's minimalist in its set, in its appearance, and quite often in the situation. Sometimes there's, there's barely a situation, but it's a really, really enjoyable show. and. I think we both had quite a lot of fun watching this. Bad timing, in a way. I don't know, just sometimes you find something and you think, this is just ever so slightly missed the bus. If Freddie Frinton had lived another 10 years, this would be a very famous show, because I think almost certainly they would have brought it back for colour. It was part of the thing for the push for colour, bringing back Steptoe and Son, Sykes, yeah, things like that. There was this thing of bringing back people's old favourites in colour. Meet the Wife, I think, would have come back for three or four series. 
it would have been constantly repeated and it would be very famous because there's nothing in here in as much as it's very of its time in a really enjoyable way there's nothing in here that really stands between it and being legendary except for the fact that it's all black and white telly recordings and of course big chunks of it are missing but this this could have been one of the legendary bbc sitcoms of course a lot of people over the last few days or so have been talking about ernest maxim uh, who sadly passed away recently in the ernest maxim era of mocker and wise they had this little skit that they did you can see it in the christmas shows of 75 and 76 for example where they have black and white photographs of their guest stars as children, effectively with their caption. This was something that they'd actually wanted to do about five years earlier, but the, I think he would have been the head of comedy, Tom Sloan at that time, sometimes been portrayed in dramas like the Dance Army drama a little while ago. He, as Eric Morecambe described, this chap, Tom Sloan turns up and cuts them all out, says, no, no, we don't want black and white. And their thinking behind this is colour licences have only just started in 69, it would have been, and they are quite considerably more expensive than black and white. And there is a real sort of pushback to have colour material on colour television as much as possible. And so, yeah, you've got this situation post late 69 where black and white series aren't really being repeated. And there are sometimes there are letters into the Radio Times of people talking about, oh, it was nice to see a colour adaptation of this. The P.G. Woodhouse plays with John Alderton, Pauline Collins in 75. The reviewer in the Radio Times actually makes specific mention, oh, it's so nice to finally see a colour adaptation of this. It's almost as if there's a sort of feeling that, that what's gone before, it's like, okay, you could put out a black and white film in the afternoon, but peak time, you know, we want colour. It's not really something that you, you see... Subsequent to that, it's not something, it's not something you ever saw with Nikam Stereo of some suddenly people saying that these, these old mono shows, they will, these will have to go. <laughs> and even HD to, to an extent. Okay, yes, it's nice when they upgrade something and bring out an HD. Uh, it seems that this is something of a, a sort of a whirlwind. And yeah, they get caught up in this somewhat. So yeah, it, it is a real shame. And plus, as you said, the number of episodes which are missing. This is like there being some famous group you didn't realize existed if we think of dad's army steptoe and son the likely lads if we think of those in terms of the beatles and the who and famous bands yet meet the wife is like finding out that there was another hugely famous band who released well-received albums that somehow everybody then forgot about i asked my mom i said we're watching meet the wife do you remember she said I think so. Last time it was shown on BBC One, there was one episode repeated in 1969. Thora heard, just looking back at some classic stuff, the last series had been repeated in full in 1967. But then after that, it's gone. Out of sight, out of mind. So what is it about Meet the Wife? Yeah, the first thing that really struck me, it didn't really hit me when I was watching the pilot. I noticed a little bit, and then as the series goes on, some of these are almost like bottle episodes. They're not completely bottle episodes. There's usually one or two other people, but Freddie Frinton and Thora Heard are bearing a heck of a lot of the comic weight of this. As long, long stretches of just the two of them. Let's talk about Prol Feed. Eh? You've read 1984. Yes, of course. Yes. Well, you've seen the TV version, haven't you, with Peter Cushing? Uh, yes. 
Right. So the whole thing is uh, one of the things that the party does is produce trashy pop culture that they call prol feed. And it oh, keeps the I know what you down. mean. Now, I'm not accusing... No, 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 not 1984. Robocop. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Brown's boys. Oh, no. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that Meet the Wife is prol feed, but my expectations were this is going to be the kind of thing people think of as that. I was expecting it to be much more, whoops, boing, you know, just comedy, good old-fashioned comedy. Like the better carry-ons, not quite so suggestive, but with that kind of music hall spirit. And it's not really like that. But then the other thing I started thinking about is, why did those things exist? Part of this was also brought to mind because the death of Dennis Norton. I don't make this as a flippant point, but we think of Dennis Norton as somebody who produced a lot of very comforting comedy, uh, things like Looks Familiar. And Dennis Norton, purely by accident, saw the inside of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Freddie Frinton, it was difficult for him to do that recording of Dinner for One for German television. He still had that thing. Resistance to the idea of working with Germans. So Meet the Wife is made for and by people who've been through wars the fact that it happened once and then it happened again, it leaves a mark. And I think that's why the stereotype of the sitcom as just something that is there to empty out some time, just make you laugh. It's not just to comfort people, to make them forget how bad things are and all that stuff. I mean, I've tried to describe the Blitz to people here in the US, and I said, you know, imagine 9-11 every few days for years. Does this make sense? Yes. So it's why the carry-ons exist. Now, okay, there comes a point when you've got to wake up and try and push back at some of the bad things in the world, but sometimes that's a luxury of people who have managed to grow up in a certain amount of comfort. I guess kind of it is, this is so early 60s, because the other thing is, this is about a working class couple who have it better than their parents. It's not done in a serious, poor-faced way. In fact, I'm not sure it's necessarily deliberately telling that story, but it's just like, what is life for people like this now? Because what's funny about it? What amusing things would happen to an ordinary working class couple in 1963? But it's all there, seeded through the dialogue. They have things they didn't think they'd have. They have holidays. They have opportunities. It's making me think back to our Heidi High discussion. Because even though that's set a couple of years before this, then when you say about... Uh, yeah, some people will argue all oh, this profit business about always oh, just to distract people from what's important yeah, and some stuff is made with contempt but maybe more so now but the thing is that when you say about you know to distract people from how bad things are okay well that's all relative but as you say in comparative terms things really aren't that bad at this period of time compared to 20 years earlier and it is very nice to see a period of time where people are enjoying themselves and are generally happy with their lot. We don't yet have, for example, okay, Freddie Frinton's occupation is supposed to be a plumber. I'm not sure to what extent automation and what have you would affect that particular line of business. But 
you don't really have, it's not even an issue, to be honest. It's not something that ever really comes up. There's not really any fret hanging over the situation in this situation comedy. And so the disagreements that they have are over relatively trivial things. And there's no one big axe looming. It's not like you're in a, a situation, draw a comparison with the rag trade, for example. Peter Jones always rushing in and panicking because the production has dropped and he's sort of trying to get across to them, look, these are your jobs that are on the line. So they're in a situation which is quite stressful. And by comparison, this really isn't at all. Yeah, there's kind of two things always happening in this. Funny things and... You could almost call this show First World Problems in a nice way. The other thing they're always eager to point out is they really do love each other. There are little bits of reflection of occasionally the bossy wife and the henpecked husband, but it's not one of those Howard and Pearl in Last of the Summer Wine. He's not the gormless man-child and the northern matriarch. It's not that. They get on very well. They really do love each other. Okay, she will be a ridiculous drama queen sometimes and accuse him of being a dreadful husband. That's more a little acceptable break with character. They managed to sell it. That's what I'm saying. What did you you call Howard there? Gormless Manchild. That actually sounds like the name of a character in something. Here comes (laughs) Gormless. We've actually seen Howard in something the other day when he wasn't being Howard, didn't we? That will come. Don't start doing two weeks from now. Now. So I don't know if I'd say it was a gentle comedy because the jokes are fairly bang crash, but it's a gentle story. It's about a middle-aged married couple who really do love each other. Anytime it looks like there are problems with the marriage, it's really just, like you say, threat. It's for the sake of the comedy. So there is one where she jumps to the conclusion that he's being unfaithful. And it's so that she can act as wounded as possible and start crying. It's never played as if she's actually hurt. It's just like she wants some attention. Now, here's a funny thing about this. So we've spoken before about how George, George Mildred, George is not only disappointing as a husband, but also maybe unwittingly or unthinkingly quite heartless and cruel on occasion. The strange thing about this is that we don't have that. We don't have that kind of situation here. And yet there is a constant allusion to something throughout all the series, which actually makes Freddy look like quite a a heel. Um, And Fora doesn't waste any time in bringing this up under any circumstances when she's upset about something. Because they've got grown-up kids and now they've got grandkids. And she constantly talks about this time that she was left alone when she was having her first child because Freddie had gone off to the pub, usually to play darts. And then this is expanded as time goes on and eventually it transpires that she went to the hospital on the bus with him. Yeah, it's like the one thing that's sort of out of place with his character because it's actually quite hard to envisage Freddie's character doing that, like on screen. Do you remember when you said about those two programs from 2003 where they looked back at characters one was about fletcher and one was about Margot. life beyond the box that's it remember when the one about fletcher where the archive clip of porridge has fletch talking about occasionally breaking into someone's car and then this is dramatized on screen i think you'd said it's one thing when he says it with Fletch's delivery and, you know, you're on his side by this point, so it's okay, you can overlook that. But actually seeing it on the screen is like, 
Yeah, hang on a minute. This is a bit unseemly. If for whatever reason, if they've actually done a flashback of this situation that Fora repeatedly describes, it would be pretty awful. The thing is, initially, uh, the, yeah, the bus thing's bad, but initially, that probably isn't meant to make him look like that much of a heel. If their children are born in the 1940s, he's not going to be there going, push, dear, push. The husbands do the husband thing and the wives get looked after. Well, isn't he supposed to be out in the hallway pacing? That's what you do, isn't it? That's if it's at home. No, 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 Kenneth Connor and Carry On Matron. Paces. Oh, right, okay. Well, yeah, that sort of thing. But I don't think it would have stood out quite as much. Yeah, obviously when they had the detail about the boss. She's much more of a battle axe in the pilot, isn't she? Her voice is harsher. So the pilot is a good example of all of this because very simple situation, they're buying a new bed. But also it's about modernity. They're options for a new bed. They buy a bed and we see it in subsequent series. They buy a bed that has lamps built into it. This is a modern bed they've bought. And also, it's mostly just the two of them. There's an assistant at the shop, things like that. But generally, it's stuff that really only requires there to be the two of them to get the comedy out of it. So that's what this show is, really. It's all about a middle-aged married couple enjoying modernity. It gets off to a flyer. And when it starts up properly in... April 64, in a way we've got a sort of two-part story. You know what it's like in, in shows where something's going to happen and we're constantly told something big's going to happen and, yep, this is it, it's definitely going to happen. But at the back of your mind, you're sort of thinking, by the 28-minute mark, this isn't going to happen because I can see next week's listing in the Radio Times and everything looks normal, so this probably isn't going to happen, whatever it is. Whereas in this case, they spend the whole episode talking about going away on holiday. And then they do. And then the week after that, they come back. Amazing. How novel. It's quite nice, actually, to see a show in which something nice is proposed and actually happens. It isn't taken away. Now, if I might go off a quick tangent at this point. Tilt, are you aware of any reason why the plot of Series 1, Episode 1 and actually some of the subplots of the later series, have you got any idea as to why these could not have happened in years previous without making Freddy a proper actual heel? Not necessarily a heel, but somebody who was a bit shady. Okay, go on. So in Getting Away, the first regular episode, he claims that he's had a win at the bookies on the Greyhounds. Now, he actually hasn't. This, this is part of the plot and he's, he's going to try and pay off the holiday and in installments and so on. But Fora is constantly nagging Freddy about how much he spends on gambling. And this is a relatively new thing, even by this point in April of 64, because betting and gambling generally was called off track. So if you're not actually at the, the Greyhounds or the horse races or whatever, Betting off track has only been legal since 1960. It was legalised by Rab Butler, who was the Home Secretary. And the thinking was that people are going to gamble anyway, and they are gambling, and so this is something that we best legislate for, and then we can potentially tax and so on. If this had been before 1960, and Freddie had come home and said, oh, I had a really good win on the, the dogs, unless it was strongly implied that he'd actually been to the track, 
then we would have been expected to believe that Freddy had placed his bet with what were called bookies runners. And I'm imagining that they would probably be played by somebody like Anthony Morton or Timothy Bateson. So you've just got some sort of shady character hanging around street corner and you give him your couple of bob and what have you, place your bet, and then he's going to leg it back to where Ian Cuthbertson is running his <laughs> gambling den. So it's an exciting new world. And also this opens up one extension of this this act because it's called the Betting and Gaming Act. This also opens up the possibility of sitcom characters going to the bingo because that's a byproduct of it as well. It just struck me that this is something that they could now use and it's obviously a, a, a trope. It's something that gets used in sitcoms all the time now. But had it just been a few years earlier, then it could have been awkward to sort of imply that a sitcom character had been engaged in that kind of pursuit. It's something that I think you probably would have been more suited to, like a Dixon and Doc Green storyline or something of that ilk. You can place a bet if you go to the the event, because there's legalised betting going on there, but you can't do it. There are no tough accountants on the high street, at least not in plain sight. You know, you have to go down a alleyway or something like that well that's another point about this 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 show is all about modernity and the changing world so the thing is is it's not just the fact that they're going on holiday they're going on holiday to spain spitting in the face of ted bovis <laughs> as he cries by a cold swimming pool now hang on a minute because does this mean that they were correct in that last episode of heidi high does it mean that they yeah they... should we go back to that yeah, they saw the winds of change, and within three years, there's Ford and Freddy, and they're going to Majorca. Let's jump back. Yes, that was one of the things we didn't say about Heidi High, was that that last episode, which takes place in 1960, is a little bit previous. They were still opening new holiday camps in 1966. So, yes, holiday camps did go into a decline, but not the way that it's portrayed in Heidi High. It's unusually prescient of Ted to say that the holiday to Spain is going to kill off the holiday camp. And winds of change. I mean, when did Macmillan make that speech? The wind of change speech was made by Macmillan to the Department of South Africa in Cape Town on the 3rd of February 1960. Right. Okay, that's fine. So there's one bit in Meet the Wife when they're talking about the prospect of going on holiday to Spain and then said, remember, our parents used to stop at home for the holidays and eat bread and dripping. Which sounds almost like a parody. It sounds like four Yorkshiremen, but... <laughs> and interestingly, so the whole thing is played out that he doesn't want his wife to know that he's got the holiday on tick. But when she finds out, she's more touched by his gesture. And as it turns out, she had enough saved to pay for the holiday. That's what I mean. We do get bits. Yeah, Freddy is a bit of a northern man of a certain type. And just occasionally he might even have kind of an Andy Cap thing. He's not all the way into that. I tell you what I like about this show. The characters have the same name as the actors. That's really helpful. So you can tell about Freddy by the way Thora reacts to him. So when she finds out he's buying a holiday on Tick, she's just happy that he's buying her a holiday. She offers to pay for it. She's just thrilled that they're going to do this thing that they probably never imagined could happen. There's also some nice continuity running through this show. When they buy the bed in the pilot, it stays. It's the same bed. I mean, I know that sounds daft, as in, well, why wouldn't it be? But it's got a distinctive look. 
and it's installed at the end of that pilot episode and then beginning of the first series, there it is. It's still there. The Doctor who comes to visit is always played by the same actor. We've got occasional references back to bits and pieces. What are Cook and Mortimer's strengths? We can talk about Cook and Mortimer's strengths at a later date, but right now we should be talking about Chesney and Wolf's strengths. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd say that Chesney and Wolf are pretty strong at characterization, first of all. I think that they're pretty good at getting us to care about characters and having people who you sympathize with because they're recognizable. So be it the rag trade or meet the wife or on the buses, it's a situation which people can immediately digest and there are recognizable players in it so it's not something which if, if you missed like a, an episode for a week or something like that and you come back to it and you just completely lost the, the, the plot of it there's nothing like that going on and i know we can talk about the way that we say in jest about how jack is, is the worst person who ever existed in any piece of art but nevertheless most of the people in their shows are people who are relatively sympathetic I can't really think of too many people on a Chesney Wolf show who are just out and out wrong-uns, who you really wouldn't want to be anywhere near. And that's not to say that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, because quite often the best sitcom characters are also people that you wouldn't necessarily want to know in real life. But I think that they definitely had a gift for having characters that people would take to. And having plots which reflected people's everyday lives. Sometimes it's been a bit of a bugbear of mine. When you see actors who have been around for a while, they're established. I'm not thinking of anybody specific in this, but I can think of instances where it's happened. Actors have been around a long time. They've made it, basically. They're, they're, they're safe, they're comfortable. And you could probably assume that they've got a few pence put aside in the post office savings account. And then when you see them portraying characters who are saying things like, well, money isn't everything you know. You know money doesn't bring you happiness. I know you, you want to concentrate on what's important and, and all this kind of thing. And there's just a little bit of me at the back of my mind that's sort of thinking, you've sort of lost touch with how life is for a lot of people. When you sort of lose touch about how important sometimes it can be, even just a few pounds difference in somebody's pay packet, what a difference that can make. It can be the difference sometimes between somebody having the heating on or not in any given week. When you lose sight of that kind of thing, then you've lost it then. You're no longer in touch with your audience. And I think that's something that Chesney and Wolf got. I think that's something that they understood about their audience. And when Reg Farney was interviewed about buses, I think about 1992, I think it was. I think it was on This Morning. When he was asked all you know the all the good old days and, and and what have you, and he was a bit more stone faced about it and saying, "Yeah, times are tough, They're bloody hard." In in a way, you know, these kind of shows that reflect that. So I would say that that's definitely uh, Chesney and Wolf's strength is that. Okay, you can say that something like Take a Letter, Mister Jones. Okay, that's would have been a classic by series three. Bit more far fetched and what have you, but by and large. At no point are you looking at any of these characters and sort of thinking that there's anything far-fetched here. You never really got the impression at any point in this that there was any kind of, 
Well, I didn't at least. I don't know about yourself. I didn't get the impression that at any point the characters were being molded to fit the situation. It's quite often happens when we talk about you know shows over multiple series. I just thinking that sometimes Freddy is a little bit more selfish than other times, and sometimes Thora is less trusting. But there's wiggle room. They're just kind of bending the characterization a bit. The reason I was wanting to know about Reeler and Woolsey's strengths. <laughs> Hudson and Hall. <laughs> <laughs> There's one line in this that is just brilliant. It's not even really that much of a joke. But he's talking about how she has enough blankets to lag a 40-gallon tank. Because, of course, that's what he'd say. He's a plumber. There's no need for that line to reinforce his characterization as a plumber, but it does anyway, really naturally. Okay, I've been watching some Mind Your Language. It's on Amazon Prime, the first three series anyway. You don't like Jeremy, do you? And sometimes you just want to have the TV on, you want some voices in the background, but you don't really want to have to watch television. Or I find sometimes I feel that side out. So I put on Mind Your Language and I keep being distracted by how sloppy it is they all make mistakes which is yeah okay that's a good idea so we can have some jokes out of mistakes i mean some of them are all fairly music hall schoolroom sketches bit like the stuff the marx brothers did in the beginning but there's no thought put into the kind of mistakes speakers of different languages would make and i can't think of any specific examples but there was definitely one, I watched one with Gary one time and said, a German wouldn't make that mistake because the word's almost the same in German as it is in English. English is a Germanic language. She's going to make different mistakes from Danielle because Danielle speaks a Romance language. There's one bit where uh, Juan Cervantes suggests, let's all have a drink, and everybody cheers, including the Muslim. So there's just this thing, there's like, there's no care put into it there's no 40 gallon tank lines i think that's the thing i've been having a few discussions on twitter about things that are unfair or untrue being funny and for me it doesn't work if you're going for such a broad stereotype that your stereotype isn't based on observation of the type it's based on other jokes about the same thing that now we're getting divorced from the initial source i get to a point where i can't enjoy it anymore because there's nothing quite so joyous in some ways as a joke that's funny but also shows that the person understands the thing they're making the joke about do you have a specific example in mind no i don't want to say you know daleks can't go upstairs oh but actually remember no no that, that's a slightly different thing there must be more fundamental ones that... Well, wasn't there once like a scene in Frasier which was based around the idea that British people called umbrellas bumber shoots? <laughs> it's part of my issue with Frasier. It's like, okay, just say Daphne is from Pippington under Whiffle. Don't say she's from Manchester and then say she had a lake outside her house. <laughs> Just have a mythical place where all that odd stuff might be true. Have a lag of 40-gallon tank. Anyway, I want to put that in the uh, sitcom hall of fame, lagging a 40-gallon tank. Also, Morecambe and Wise in bed. So there are frequent scenes of Thora and Freddy just sitting in bed, 
shooting the breeze, misunderstanding each other humorously. I'm not saying Eddie Brabham had this in mind when he started writing the bed sketches for Marco and Weiss, but it is an example of why two people sitting in the same bed is a really great setup for humorous crosstalk. They're close together and they're facing in the same direction because that's how beds are generally. And I just saw a little parallel there. I thought I'd bring it up. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't care. I haven't said anything. I haven't agreed or disagreed. I I think I've been learning passive aggression from Thora. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, it is helpful in just pure sitcom televisual terms that the bed is a place where they can both face in the same direction. It's, It's very useful. Although it's not been a problem for are you being served when it comes to the canteen. I can't remember. It's not true that the first couple in a sitcom, this is in the US, who shared the same bed were the Flintstones. There was a much earlier example. But even like in I Love Lucy, some people talk about how the fact that their double bed was two single beds pushed together. That was apparently relevant somehow. You remember when we watched that revival of the Dick Van Dyke show from, what was it, the early 2000s? And they look in the bedroom and they say, look, there's one bed. How did that happen? <laughs> yes, they slept in separate beds. Now, I'm not sure what the situation was like with the British sitcom, but yeah, I can imagine 1963 might be one of the earliest examples of showing a couple in the same bed in a comedy show and something so light. And it just makes me wonder if Eddie Brabant might have seen it as proof of concept. Okay, now I don't want to go all ageist on you here. But I'm sort of thinking, Fora and Freddie, their, their grandparents, is, is it that it's sort of acceptable for them to be seen sharing a bed? Whereas if it had been, say, marriage lines, for example, a younger couple, maybe not. Now, I'm maybe making a complete burke of myself because I haven't seen marriage lines for a long time. So maybe they're always sharing a bed every week. No, I think it's more a case of uh, what they're doing and how they're speaking, really, if that makes sense. If in Marriage Lines you'd had Richard Breyer sitting there and he's got no pyjamas on, no pyjama top on, there might be suggestions or if he's talking about certain activities. I once had this discussion with somebody who said, you know, Mockham and Wise were in bed together. Nobody ever said anything. I said, that's not because it was the old days. It's because they were Mockham and Wise. Because Eddie Braben's characterization for Mockham and Wise was partially, I might have said this before, there's a slight sense that he's writing them as if they never actually recovered from running wild. There's this faint sense that they're a couple of old variety circuit warhorses who've never quite made it. It's just faint indication in, in some of the lines. And so partially, Mockman wise, they're kind of childlike in a way. And also, you can just think they've just got used to sharing one bed because they've been in so many dreadful guest houses they've been finding digs year in year out they show it in the film eric and ernie uh Malcolm and wife share a bed for the first time because there's only two beds and sadie's taking one and she has to the boys have to go in another so it fits in with the characterization whereas the two ronnie's in bed together you might start to expect a certain joke to be made and there are also certain jokes that they don't do I, I, they, they talked about it in one of their autobiographies they never say for example your feet are cold a certain places that they don't go. Because, I mean, Neddy Braben, you know, described it as it's, it's Laurel and Hardy. Well, with Laurel and Hardy, Laurel and Hardy, if you see them in bed together, it's because they're destitute. 
It's because it's the depression and one bed is all they can manage. But it follows on then that, yeah, that, that Eric and Emily are sort of portrayed as having been in a similar situation and so they're just used to it by this point. I had a point to make and I can't remember. I can't remember the name. I, sh- I saw a short film on Vimeo and it shows Tommy Cooper and Eric Malcolm and Bob Monkhouse in a dressing room talking about themselves. And it's just a nice little character piece. And in fact, as I'm saying this, I'm going to turn on some machines and try and go to Vimeo and, and remind myself. But one of the things is they have a discussion about how they do the same joke. And they take Bob Monkhouse's joke, I still enjoy sex at 63. I only live at 58, it's not distance. Eric Morkham says, we'd have to say, do you still enjoy it at 63? Said, we can't say sex. And then they have Tommy Cooper and Tommy Cooper says, I still enjoy sex at 63. And then they start laughing and said, you don't even need the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> You're just funny. <laughs> It's called The Last Laugh. Uh, it's by Evolution Productions, and it would appear to be still on Vimeo. The Bob Monkhouse impression. Wow. The guy playing Tommy Cooper doesn't look like Tommy Cooper. He sounds like him, but that Bob Monkhouse impression is something else. It's uncanny in places. So, yeah, that's another reason why who can you put in bed together and who could you not put in bed together without the expectation that things are going to get filthy. So the title sequence of Meet the Wife. It's got a nice little piece by Ross Conway as its theme, which is different in series one to the rest of it, because by series two, there is a bit of the Dick Van Dyke show about it. Yeah, but whereas series one's a bit more sort of downplayed, and it's just like, well, hey, here we are. But there isn't really a title sequence. They do the standard thing, so we see the title, and it's overlaid. Similar to Steptoe. I think more in subsequent series than in series one, yes. Well, Thora Heard's credit will come up and we'll see her performing an action and then and with Freddie Frinton we'll see where he is and what action he's performing but I've got the feeling that in some of the earlier ones it was just meet the wife comes up with these quote marks now they've put they've tried to put quote marks because it's a title sometimes you put quote marks around a title but the title is vertical meet one line that and you know and so the quote marks only go around the word meet <laughs> meet the wife eh? meet the wife if you know what I mean hey, hey. no I don't know what you mean you're slightly scaring me <laughs> not, not. anyway so what part of his thinking is is that what Pinwright's progress must have looked like is that what sitcom looked like in the very very early days there's no title sequence there are just caption cards they managed to overlay them. I don't know if they're... I don't think they're doing that thing where you kind of half mix to a caption card because the light level drops and that's not happening. So I'm guessing they're possibly using maybe something like LumiKey. But that got me thinking how much of the tendencies in Meet the Wife are going back to 1946. This is the way we've always done it. People talk about the destruction of British television or the non-recording. No, it's just yourself that talks about that. Nobody else does. Don't know any Doctor Who fans, do you? The Guardian doesn't care because, as far as they're concerned, TV was invented 2008 with Netflix or something. It would be so fascinating if only we just even say three hours per year of television. What did television look like in 1946? Can't just have been Jasmine Bly introducing herself. <laughs> what are the sitcoms that we don't even know about? The sitcoms of the 
late 40s and early 50s. What were they like? What did they look like? And how much, if we had them, would we be able to tie them up with later things? Some of the stuff we see in shows is not just the nature of that show. It was the nature of television unchanged. But I think overall, one of the things Meet the Wife reminded me of was the Honeymooners. And as that leaves my mouth, I'm just thinking, I don't think the Honeymooners got much exposure in the UK until the BBC started showing it. I think it had been shown. I think it had been shown on ITV. It's always grander, isn't it? Whenever we go looking for things, it's like, oh yeah, this didn't get shown until like the 80s or something. Like that. And then we find like one screening and it's always grander. Just I have a feeling it might be, I've looked it up before, but it was a while ago. I think it might be it was on ABC. But it might have been something like six weeks in 1958 and then, vroom, gone until 1988. Yes, that does ring a bell, actually. I think we looked at that before. So that's not a conscious influence. It's We're just... Spedley Hillbillies. Couldn't get enough of that. We're still showing that in the 80s, for goodness sake, on Granada. Okay, so let's fast forward to, because there's only one surviving episode of series two called The Teenage Niece. Now, I thought in terms of, because we spoke before about how popular culture in sitcoms and how there's usually like a sort of three-year gap or so, this wasn't too bad a representation. I didn't think. I'm impressed how 1966 she looks, considering it's 1964. No, they're right on top of portraying teenagers. I say that like I was there. Insofar as I am informed, and let's face it, I do pay attention to old stuff sometimes, that really rang true to me. She was not a sitcom teenager. She did feel like a real teenager, even though to not being all that pleasant. Okay, she wasn't quite as bad as... Oh, what was it called? I think no, f- I've... no frills. No frills. Oh. <laughs> what was it that was so bad about her again? She just say, ending a conversation with her mother with, Are you stupid or what? Okay, is the teenager a no-frills better or worse than bad Janet in The Good Place? <laughs> yeah, she's bad Janet. Gary, what the hell's happening to us? I know, I know, it's, it's, it's a concern. It's your, That's you, crazy. You're getting me hooked on all this new stuff. Well, on the one hand, I feel it behooves us to say nice things about modern shows if we find nice things to say. So for all that I'm Mr. End of History and we don't even talk about anything from even 10 years before that, I found that there's some... You, that's that's next week. That's next week. We haven't really broken down any plots, but then again, it's not that easy. It really is just... It's not, whoops, the vicar's coming up the drive, but there is a lot of, I'm trying to impress somebody socially, uh, which I guess you can say happens with the teenage niece. They don't really care if they seem out of step with her, but they're expecting her to be... I mean... She's got problems, isn't she? She she's smoking a cigarette instead of eating a jelly. Yeah, that's right. She's she's talking about yeah, jelly and ice cream. It's like oh oh, I, I couldn't couldn't face that. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Quite often, yeah, the plots are very basic. I would not going to say mundane, but quite often, like a, a plot can be entirely in the bedroom. Like the, you can say a plot is thin episode. as a criticism, but in this case. I think it's a strength because because of the strength of the two players involved. The plot is thin because the characterization is dense. Uh, the characterization is not compensating for the thinness of the plot. They're managing to keep the plot out of the character's way. Yes. It would be a different show if you were to try and recast this later on and you didn't have as good performers as Ford Harden, Freddie Frinton. It would suffer as a result. 
but it doesn't need distractions. Yeah, I mean, if this had been made in the last few years, somebody would have said how innovative it was. Well, no, we spoke about this, didn't we? Because as we were watching this, we suddenly started talking about Roger and Val have just got in and how that was spoken about as being exactly that because it's like all takes place. They're both getting home and it's just relatively straightforward dialogue and, and what have you. And yeah, I mean, in a way, I suppose it's innovative in as much as that kind of thing hadn't been done for some decades previously although you could also argue the same about the royal family and that's not all that old it's only 20 years old to go forward a couple of series because we have no series free to refer to because that's lost entirely and we've only got one episode of series two that we can look at and there are meant to be two episodes of series two out there but i'm not sure if one of them's missing from the dvd or if our friend who fixed us up with some uh just forgot we did also get off on a tangent about the front room now do you want to explain the front room to younger listeners? No, you explain the front room because you seem to have had more experience of it than I did. Well, that sounds kinky the way that you're saying that there because as you said that... I was no, nobody at... thinks you're into anything kinky. Everybody knows that you're as vanilla as they come. No, the, the thing is that when you said that there, I was actually looking at the DVD of the Whackers on the shelf in front of me and the front room in the Whackers is like where all the... goes on and Pa gets upset about it. Just like Wadi. the room by Tommy Wiseau. Take your word for I'm that. sure it's directly inspired by the Whackers. So I was asking you, did you have a front room? And by that I mean, because they have that in Meet the Wife, there is basically one room. I would have dreamed of having a room. One room in the house, which isn't used basically. So it's the front room, it's effectively what would be the living room, but it isn't used except when somebody like the vicar comes calling and it's absolutely pristine and nobody is allowed to go in there. And so effectively... Your living area is the room that's adjacent to the kitchen. On my my dad's side, my grandparents, that was exactly what their place was like. They lived in the room that was immediately adjacent to the kitchen and the front room was pristine and nobody went in there. And I I sort of quite like that. I quite like the idea of just having uh, an absolutely immaculate room that is just like, that's where the silver is. Well, why don't you have a room which you have with plush furnishings and acoustic tiles on the wall and record your podcast there instead of having your voice bouncing off the walls? Because the bouncing off the walls, it gives my voice uh, a nice homely feel to it. Whereas if it was too professional, then it would start sounding like we were on the radio. And we don't want that, do we? Fast forward to series four. One episode where we've got like a full on we're going to go somewhere, do something different, plot, is the hotel. Which was the one that was repeated in 1969, so I'm guessing Thora Heard picked that as her favourite. And I'm, I'm sort of thinking that if this show was still getting repeated, I think that would be considered an absolute classic. You've got lots of set piece bits and pieces. You've got lots of artefacts and props to play with and so on. And so in a way, it's sort of atypical to an extent. But it's about what the show is always about, though, as well. This is a nice hotel. This is a nicer hotel than they ever thought they'd ever see. Again, the show's about modernity and social mobility. And tell you what else has just occurred to me. There's an episode of Coronation Street about Stan and Hilda. And they go and stay in a nice hotel. That's where that line, what does that taste of? Woman, Stanley, woman. That's from that episode. Is this something that Jeffrey Hughes has fixed up for them on like a sort of cut price arrangement and it's going to backfire? I think they won it. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yes, I'm, I'm beginning to think of it as almost maybe, if I watch it again, it'll feel like a remake of that particular Meet the Wife. There were a couple of plots in this which I could sort of identify as being 
reused in later Chesney and Wolf sitcoms. Of course, because you kept saying this is like just my dear. Yeah, there were scenes. I was thinking, yeah, I've seen that before, seen that before. And also the business with Freddy's brother turning up. And straight away I'm then thinking, oh, Mike Reed. But then I started thinking, but actually the situation that's been used here is actually one I'd seen later on in on the buses with Stan constantly trying to get up and down the stairs. And of course, again, this is a sort of an era where I guess you can do that kind of thing more easily because shows aren't being repeated as often as now, I guess, if a show was, again, we're going back to 21st century shows again, if a show was the kind of thing that's on Netflix or whatever, and you've got like entire box sets of everything, if you actually had like huge chunks of things that were being reused, people could spot that straight away. I've never watched Yes, My Dear, and I'm not going to start. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good idea, and I would But then uh, you said something that. about how... Um main character in yes my dear is a rich trade unionist he is well he's not he's not so much trade unionist as in mr Harmon, for example he's not like a union rep as i remember but the idea is that this is at the absolute peak of the earning power of people in certain industries where they've got strong trade union backing so he'll come home and say to his wife oh i had a bit of a slim week this week i only made 103 quid which is in 77, considerable. So again, do we get plots about them having things that their parents didn't dream of? You do, but also bear in mind that they are, just my dear, as a show derived from Romany Jones. So the fact that they're actually in a house is a novelty for a start. But yeah, they do have a lot of mod cons. They're enjoying it. They're getting sort of used to it and then starting to have first world problems as well. So yeah, there's a few similarities. Bringing it back then to Harold Macmillan, is Meet the Wife a show about a couple who've never had it so good? I think you could probably argue that. Gold star to me then. Now the point is this, if you'd been around at that period of time, you would have just thought, well, you know, the good old days are here and they're here to stay and everything's just going to get better and better and better and better forevermore. And that then leads us to next week where we're talking about 21st century sitcoms. How did this happen? It happened because I live in the United States and I got a television aerial a while ago called Antennas here so I could actually watch network TV. And occasionally I've glimpsed something on network TV and thought, that looks fairly amusing. And then sometimes I look on one of the streaming services. You don't have Hulu over there, do you? No, we don't. Unless... So Hulu's a bit like a cross-network I play it's a little bit like Netflix in that they get shows in and movies of old, but they also have this watch again facility. CBS has its own, and I'm not going to buy that because I don't want to encourage the idea that all the networks are going to have their own streaming services. Please, no. And now DC Entertainment's doing its own. Ah, but they have a bit of a watch again facility. So sometimes I might catch something and think, oh, right, I'll go back to the beginning and watch that when it's on tomorrow. Day after transmissions, shows turn up on Hulu. And so I found that. Are you mansplaining streaming services right now to our listeners? I'm explaining a service that a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with. There must be at least some of our listeners who've actually got Hulu. There are are ways. That's fine, but they're going to understand that not all of them do and that it's all right. So I found myself watching US sitcoms that have been made in this decade, and I've been finding that I'm laughing at them. And thinking, this is really good. I like it. 
So as I'm involved in a podcast about sitcoms, it would be remiss of me not to bring these to your attention. And so, yes, in the, on the one hand, I've said there are certain modern shows we won't talk about, or certain even older shows, that we're not going to talk about because they don't really need it. At every show with over a certain number of viewers these days probably has its own podcast, if not multiple podcasts. I don't doubt there are thousands of podcasts about The Good Place, some of which might make it past three shows. But I thought, yeah, but this is us. This is what, show 91? 92? I think by this point, maybe some people are familiar with us that they might like to hear us talking about them because it's us. And maybe we'll recommend some new stuff for them to get into. You do realise the digital geo-enabled dilemma that this poses, don't you? Because all these shows that you've got at the touch of a button, mm -hmm, voice control, Hulu, get me superior donuts, whatever. I'm going to have to go and find where all these shows are shown in the UK so that people can actually find all this stuff. That's fine. Don't worry, though. We're not going to start going, oh, my God, you are such a cheaty or any of that stuff. Don't worry about it, listeners. We'll be back talking about the hits of 1937 before too long. So next week, 21st century US sitcoms. Are we going to reveal the sitcoms in advance or not? No, let's not reveal them now because we might end up not talking about some of them due to time constraints. So there's going to be a whirlwind tour of the American networks and the streaming services next week. In the meantime, you mentioned the, the, the literally thousands of podcasts that we have done over the past five years. And you can find each and every single last man jack of them at podnose.com, where you can also find lots of other podcasts as well. Literally, genuinely, genuinely thousands of them. And you can follow ourselves at Jaffas for Proust or The Sitcom Club on twitter just search for i love those two expressions on facebook and you'll find us because we've got one page for both because facebook wouldn't let us change the name of it so you search for something called jaffa kids for proust and you get taken to a page called the sitcom club but that's fine and in the meantime we'll be back next week with our look at the twin i still can't believe i've been talked into doing this i mean some of those shows were made this year uh, the, yeah that's just freaking me out okay we're going to be on board for 2018 it's all happening and we will be with you then next time on The Sitcom Club.